This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 12th episode of Crime Over Wine, the only podcast with head-scratching true crime stories that are just better over a bottle of wine. I'm your host, Liam Collins, and this week I have some double trouble as some guest co-hosts. They are not only podcast hosts, too, but their biggest superpower is that they are a couple of badass moms. My guest co-hosts this week are Rachel Holloway and Heather Northcraft. Hello, guys. How's it going today? Hello. We are here. <laughs> I'm I'm wonderful well we have been talking about this for so long and i am so happy we're finally being able to do this i think my because i think if i remember correctly i think i reached out to you guys like right before my first episode dropped and so what we're on episode 12 now like oh my gosh we've been talking about this for forever it's it's been a long time coming and we i wanted it was definitely before the first episode because uh-huh. you were on it you were on it you were like <laughs> adding people i was like who's this new? i gotta see this. Oh, he's still in line. like i'm all about it <laughs> yes oh my god that's so funny i was, I was definitely trying to find my people for sure so i'm so excited that you guys yes. agreed to do this and so excited you guys you are found here. you found us <laughs> well so speaking of their podcast rachel and heather are the co-hosts of wine time it's a true crime podcast that also tells relatable and fun stories about just being a couple of moms how did that like what is how did that all come about because that's such a unique little niche part of the true crime podcast world so i think we are both moms who and people who we enjoy true crime right we -hmm. listen to it it's it's something that we both related to best friends we want to talk all the time anyways we're talking about this and Mm. we also need a palate cleanser because mm. crime is hard. Crime is oh, a yeah. tough subject. And sometimes you get so uh, wrapped up in it that you need something to make you laugh. So we mm. try to bring that as well. Yeah, I, it literally started one day. Rachel texted me and said, let's start a podcast. Get rid of the thing. I said, we can be cool stay-at-home moms. I said, done. Yeah. Deal. <laughs> let, let's figure it out. She goes, well, I mean, we both like crime. I'm like, yes, we do. Yeah. And she's like, and we're moms. Like, let's do it. And I was like, Done. Okay. Yeah, that is so cool. And it is really such a unique little, you know, section of the of the true crime world because you only talk about crimes done by moms or done against moms, too, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. So super neat. Um, and so like I think we should talk about the wine part. I agree. I am yeah. ready for it. I, I know I'm ready that. for it. <laughs> so this week we are drinking Kendall Jackson's Rosé. It's a pale pink wine with crisp red fruit flavors. The vineyard says it's a wonderfully versatile food wine, which is like super fun because I don't really think of Rosé as like food wines, yeah. but yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm, I, I guess I'm interested to see it doesn't, it didn't really like go into any like, further detail about it like what kind of foods it could be but i guess it's like versatile so like maybe a little bit of everything i just don't see myself drinking a rosé with a steak but yeah no definitely not like a steak i don't know i guess like fish i guess i could see that yeah. i don't know I like but like fish, fish like white like white wine i feel like that's really it so yeah i don't know i'm kind of confused we'll but. find out how many episodes have you finished the bottle oh um like what is this episode 12 um so yeah. um 11 episodes uh yeah <laughs> just making sure <laughs> That's the only way to go. The only way to go. Okay. Well, cheers to you, ladies. Thank you so much for coming on this week. Ooh, that apple is definitely popping in there. Talking about those Mm -hmm. crisp red fruit flavors. I definitely get some red apple in there. Very crisp. I'm trying to, you know what? It doesn't have that super, even though it's sweet, I think the crisp kind of cancels out the sugary linger yeah so i appreciate that yeah 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's definitely the sugary linger is that's a really good way to put that that's, this is good this was a good choice i feel like it's yeah, gonna like be light for our very non-light subject we're about to get into. Uh, yeah it was, it's a heavy one for sure <laughs> yeah. yeah definitely if, if the wine matched the story it would this one would definitely be like a dark 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 red oh, yeah. like, right. for sure 
So, like, on your podcast, you talk exclusively about true crime stories about moms, like we said, crimes committed by moms and against moms. So I thought we would continue with that theme this week. This week, we want to tell you about one of the most infamous moms in true crime history. This mom still maintains her innocence to this day, but is accused of brutally murdering her two boys in cold blood. But do they have enough evidence to put her to death for it? Today, we want to tell you the story of Darlie Routier, the mother on death row. June 5th, 1996 was just pretty much any other day in suburban Rowlett, Texas, just outside of Dallas. It was a pretty summer day with a lot of options for the neighborhood kids. And that's just what five-year-old Damon Routier and six-year-old Devin Routier were taking advantage of. They were out playing with the neighborhood kids while their mother, Darlie, was preparing dinner. The boy's father, Darren, and their aunt, Dana, who was Darlie's sister, came home that evening from working at the family's computer shop. When they got home, Darlie called the boys in for dinner, and they all ate together. Typical American family. Well, after dinner, Darlie asks Darren to put some leftovers away while she changes their youngest son, seven-month-old Drake. Now, yes, like major Kardashian vibes here. The whole family has D names. Well, I didn't even think, you know, I had a moment after hearing their names. I don't think I realized that all the Kardashians started with K. <laughs> 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 and I don't pay attention. At this point, the boys went back to playing with their friends and everybody else sat back down to watch some television. After a little bit, Darlie says she doesn't feel too well and asks Darren to drive her sister home. Eventually, everyone comes back home and settles down to watch some more television. And Damon and Devin also bring down some blankets and pillows to have like a cute little sleepover in the family room while Darren takes Drake upstairs to sleep. Well, he comes back downstairs, and apparently, from Darlie's recollection of this night, the two have some, quote, words between each other. I wish I was a a fly on the wall, and then all of this might be already solved. Right. 100%. (laughs) Honestly, and the fact that it's a seven-month-old baby, I will be the first to say, there are conversations when you've got, like, a young baby in the house, you put the kids down, you get the baby down. That's what, and and you finally get to like take a breath after mm. your day. That's when feelings come out. Mm. Like that's when shit hits the fan where things you've been holding like against your partner, like when things like when you start bubbling out. And so like when, when you say they have some words, mm. I can only imagine what those words are, but what did they actually say to each other? Well, so that's kind of the thing here is that they give kind of conflicting accounts of what they talked about. But frankly, I don't really have any reason to believe that everything I'm about to tell you can't be true in and of itself. Darren says they talked about their two older boys not being able to play baseball yet because Drake was still too young to make that happen. They also apparently discussed their business, their bills, and some other financial issues that they were having. Darlie also says they talked about their car and how frustrating it was for them to only have one car because it means that she can't bring the boys anywhere while Darren is at work. Darren also shares that Darlie had been having a pretty hard time taking care of the boys, particularly that day. He says Darlie had been suffering from postpartum depression, a common disorder for new moms to suffer from. And like, look, I don't have kids, but like, I know you guys do. So I'm, you know, still like the youngest of four, though, with like a similar age gap, like having three children all at once at that age simply cannot be easy. Yeah, it cannot be exactly easy. like exactly like I was saying. I mean, I have I cannot count the number of nights where we finally get the kids down. Mm. Me and my husband come back and it's just like this is happening. This is happening. Mm. This is happening. I can't stand this. This is happening. That's happening. Yeah. And I mean, Rachel and I have talked about both of our postpartum right issues mm. which we've been I there mean, is yeah we've all been there and hearing what was said yeah i totally believe that all of that could have been talked mm. about that night and just you can tell that it's tough for her like the, the mm. times are hard it's frustrating for her yeah. for sure you know there's something to be said i think about like saving especially back in what we're talking about 1996 like saving yeah. face you know yeah. like you know having this ideal you know perfect american family especially in texas like probably is everything you know you don't want that you don't want the kids to see the real problems that were going on for sure 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, apparently this seems to be like a pretty tame conversation, or at the very least, Darren appears to resolve it like a loving, caring husband. That's because he asks her if she wants him to sleep on the couch with her. And she tells him no, because she hasn't been sleeping well at all the last few weeks because of the baby. And she wants to try and get a good night's sleep on the living room couch. And apparently she's been doing that kind of on and off for the last few weeks or so. And he seems to understand because he brings her some blankets, kisses her goodnight, tells her to dream of him, and goes back upstairs to sleep in their bedroom, completely unaware of the horrors he was about to wake up to just a few hours later. Darley and the boys fell asleep with the television still on. Darley on the couch, Devin right next to her closest to the TV, and Damon on the other side of the living room table. While early in the morning, in the middle of the night, Darley feels one of her boys leaning against her shoulder. She cracks her eyes open, and as her eyes adjust, she sees a man at the foot of the couch walking away from them toward the kitchen. She says she rushes after him and saw him run through the home's utility room and into the garage. That's when she looks down and sees that he dropped a bloody butcher's knife on the kitchen floor. She picks it up, and only then does she realize the full extent of what had just happened inside of her home. She is bleeding profusely from her neck and arms, and she is covered in her own blood. She runs to the living room to check on her boys and finds that they, too, are in rough shape. They are both covered in blood and stab wounds lying on the ground, and she screams out for help, specifically for her son, Devin, who isn't moving at all. Darren hears this from upstairs, runs to the living room, and joins his wife in symphonies of shrieks of horror, and Darley calls 911.
about this case because you listen to that call and like she sounds legit mm-hmm. hysterical yeah like absolute nonsense yeah 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 mm-hmm. and like this case there's a lot of um like a lot of parallels to a case we've covered um kathleen peterson mm-hmm. um the staircase like the infamous like staircase mm-hmm. case mm-hmm. right and like you listen to his nine one one call, and I'm like, he's a total bullshitter. Mm. Like he no, but then like also I'm like he also talks like a total drama. Like mm. blah, da, 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 da. but like you listen to her, and I'm like, no, like it sounds so real yeah. in her like voice, and she, yeah, you, you can sound she sounds flustered. She she doesn't know mm. what's going doesn't on. Know what to do. As a mother, like you hear that, and that is every mm. mother's worst nightmare okay yeah like when i said like sh- like shrieks of horror i mean that doesn't yeah. even like begin to describe it you know right. with like no. what the way that she was sounding absolutely not absolutely mm. not um i want to say i would sound like that worse whatever but mm. i feel which we will never know we can say what we're going to say what we're going to do whatever mm-hmm. we will never know i want to say 100 percent. i'm not staying on the phone if mm. my Children are on that floor Mm. for me, especially if one is gasping for air. I'm not staying Mm. on that phone. I'm going to call you. You're going to send a car, whatever you need to send here. I'll put you, you could be on speakerphone and you could be over there talking however you need to tell me what to do. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The fact that she kept at, oh, and then, and then she keeps telling her like, stay calm, stay calm. How the fuck do you expect me to stay calm right (laughs) now, ma'am? Because what's the shit? Mm. (laughs) I'm sorry. Yeah. What did you, what did you both make of, um, cause, and again, we're going to get to this much later on, as you both know, but, um, you know, when, when she was like, Oh, don't touch anything. Don't touch anything. She was like, Oh, I already, like, I already grabbed the knife. 
I probably would be that person to touch everything because Uh I'm going to take that knife. I'm going to take a Uh gun. I'm going to take a fucking machete. Uh I'm going to take whatever. And I'm going to keep it next to me because if anyone Uh comes back through my house, I'm going to use it on your ass. Right. So I guess that's where my brain goes immediately is this is coming with me, whether Mm -hmm. it's a mistake or not. Well, and I read too, so it's funny you said that because I, that was not my initial, like what she was probably thinking in terms of like the self-defense mechanism right. part of it. Yeah. Um, because my first thought was, oh, she just woke up. Like she's clearly in this state of whatever, um, that yeah. she had just been stabbed. Oh, like there's a knife on the floor. That's weird. And just like grabs it instinctually because that's what you do when there's a knife on the floor. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, but, but then I did read something and it was, there's a whole website dedicated to this case. I don't know if you guys knew this. It's called darlyfacts.org. Um, right. and, um, that was one of the arguments that she made was that, um, that, you know, one of the reasons why she grabbed the knife was because, you know, there was a strange person in the house. Like she, like right. that was the first weapon that she saw. And right. so that's what right. she wanted to do. Um, right. and so I, you know, so anyways, I guess, and again, we're going to get into this much later on, but I could see kind of all different angles of this. So, um, while Rachel refills that glass, um, I think we're going to move on to the, I need so. everyone to know as I fill my, <laughs> fill my glass that it's. It's going down. <laughs> uh, well, while Darren and Darley are waiting for police to arrive to help with their babies, they are desperately trying to care for them. Damon is still moving, but barely. So Darley puts a towel on his back, trying to stop the bleeding after putting another around her own neck while Darren is giving Devin CPR. He blows into his mouth five or six times, but air just comes out of the wounds in his chest. So Darren decides to start blowing into the wounds, but obviously to no avail. When police arrive to their Eagle Drive home, Darley and Darren go outside. And at some point, Darley pleads with Darren, quote, you'll have to promise me we will find this man. He killed our babies, end quote. The boys and their mother are in rough shape, and Devin and Damon's autopsy reports are hard to read and even harder to, to hear. So go ahead and take a sip now, guys, while you can. Will do. Each of the boys were stabbed four times. Devin was laying on his back while he was stabbed and had wounds to his upper left chest, left mid-chest, left forearm, and the back of his left thigh. Damon, on the other hand, was sleeping on his front side, and he was stabbed in his left mid-back, upper right-back, right mid-back, and lower right mid-back. He also had two more shallow superficial wounds, one to his left shoulder and left upper back. I have chills. Like, I have chills. Like, these wounds show that they they didn't know anything was a threat Mm. in their life, Mm. which thank thank the Lord. Yeah. Because... We don't need them to know that. I can't, like, the trauma of that alone, Mm. just, I mean, a lifetime of issues. But, like, speaking of that, like, Darlie, like, what about Mm. Darlie? Like, how is she doing after all of this? Because you said, like, she was also attacked. Like, Mm. what, what is she doing? Well, so Darlie was stabbed multiple times, too. She had stab wounds to her neck and to her arms. Doctors later say that the stab wound to her neck had missed her carotid artery by just two millimeters. And to put that in perspective, an injury to that artery would have been fatal within seconds. She is also taken to the hospital to be treated for her injuries, and she has to undergo surgery. And my understanding, and I saw this in, like, some reports, but my understanding is that they had to, like, physically, like, surgically remove a necklace. And, like, that's Mm -hmm. the only thing that, like, stopped the necklace. I saw that, too. The (sighs) necklace. Yeah. Which, I mean, just insane on its own. Police take Darren's statement, too. And then shortly after Darley wakes up, they take hers as well. That's when Darley tells police that story about falling asleep on the couch with her two boys quite literally within arm's reach when she woke up in the middle of the night to a strange intruder inside of the home. And initially, this seemed pretty legit, right? I mean, police go right along with it and steer their investigation toward finding this strange man who broke into the suburban house in Texas and killed two young boys and tried to kill their mother while their father was fast asleep upstairs. But that's when they start trading some notes and realize that something about this story just doesn't feel right. I don't know if it's the line, or I don't know if it's, like, where we're at in this story, but I am in my feels right now. Like, because just, I don't, honestly, this wine is kick it. I like it. I like it. Listen, if you listen to my first couple episodes, listen to every episode at this point, I say it every single week, I am a dry boy. I'm a dry wine boy. That's I'm a all dry I do. Boy. 
And so, <laughs> and so I usually steer away from the rosés for that reason. Um, but for a rosé, it is sweet. It's a sweeter rosé. It is, it's a very enjoyable one. I'm, it's going down very nicely. And also too, cause I keep going back every time I take a sip, I'm like, wow, those like red fruits, like that was like the perfect way to explain yeah. this. Like it's so yeah. hard to even, like when I first wrote down red fruits, I was like, red fruits. I was like, what does that even mean? But like now that I'm drinking <laughs> it, I'm like, yeah, it tastes like red fruit. Yeah, it does. You know what? I, I know. And we've talked about this numerous times. We are caps off. <laughs> we are definitely and Cabernet girls. So for sure. it's like, I appreciate the fact that you got me out of my comfort zone mm-hmm. and we are drinking a rosé together right now. All right. I want to hear about Darlie. Yeah, let's go back to Darlie. So Darlie doesn't remember much about this brutal middle of the night attack on her and her two beautiful, innocent boys. But she remembers bits and pieces of it. At least that's what she tells police. But the rest is just kind of a blur. And she believes it may have been some form of selective or traumatic amnesia. I mean, like, really easy to believe. Like, her two oldest boys were just murdered in the middle of the night. And she didn't get off scot-free by any means either. But it is clearly causing some problems for her. She starts telling police different accounts of the night that took her two boys from her. At first, she tells police the story that I just told you all. That she woke up after feeling Damon against her shoulder and rushed after the man at the foot of the couch. But the more police ask her about it, the more that story changes. At some point, she says she woke up to the sound of breaking glass. And then she says that she fought with the intruder in the kitchen, but then she says no, like she just let him go for her own safety. I just, I feel like I I need to know more. I need to see what's going on. Mm-hmm. I, we hear this all the time in cases that things change. And I know for a fact, like sometimes I'll tell a story and it'll change based on the fact that like, I remember more or Mm -hmm. it's just like, I'm in a different frame of mind, but, but it's a lot. Heather, you're like shaking your head. I'm like, where are you? Mm -hmm. It's so true. Like, think about it. Like, just think about your day to day life. And like, you go to tell a story and then you go, wait, no, wait, Mm -hmm. it was actually this way. You know, like that happens all the time and then throw in the fact that she was trauma woken Mm. up from asleep and then throw in the fact exactly, Rachel, that she was traumatized. Yeah. Well, so police, though, are clearly not believing this story, at least totally at this point. And the reason why they say that is because of an account from one of the responding officers about what Darlie was like when they arrived at the house. And guys, I want you to read this out for us. This is later testimony that played out in court. Rachel, if you would read the questions from the prosecutor and Heather, if you could respond as officer David Waddell. This is how they describe what being in the house was like while Damon is still on the ground gasping for air. What did you do then? I instructed her to get some towels and put them on his back to try to stop the bleeding. And what did she do? Nothing. She kept telling me that when she chased the suspect across the kitchen, that he had dropped the knife by the utility somewhere over here in this area, and that she had picked up the knife and brought it back and set it on the counter. And she told me that she thought she had messed up the fingerprints. Well, at that time, Officer Waddell... That you asked her again to care for this child over here. This child with his eyes open. Did you feel that she was capable of rendering assistance to this child? Yes, sir. Okay. Why do you think she was capable of assisting this child? Well, she appeared to know everything that was going on inside the house. She was real alert and able to tell me what had happened, I thought if she was worried about fingerprints on a knife, she could certainly take care of her kids. Okay. She didn't go over there? No. I just feel like when you're... I go back and forth. Because as a mother, my first instinct, 100%, is to tend to the child. Like, through anything else that's going on. But, but, so, like, I I see where they're coming from. But then on the other side... During 
a trauma and during, I mean, I've had panic attacks where you can only focus on one thing. Yeah. And, you know, I think I should say too, like, you know, cause Darren's recollection of this whole, of how this all played out is totally different than, than what this mm-hmm. officer says. He says that, you know, there were already towels out. There were already, you know, that we had already been trying to do all this stuff, you know, and then officers came and you know, for whatever reason, this is the story that they gave. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. Maybe there, maybe there were towels and, you know, maybe they're like the, at this point, the, these like the original towers towels were gone and you know the officer came in and said you know okay well where are the towels like didn't know that there were already you know what i mean i mean i don't know and there seems to be a lot of harping on like the fact that she picked up the knife which is they're gonna look at that yeah they're they're gonna look at that and it makes sense to look at that everyone's Mm -hmm, gonna look at that Mm -hmm. it you know, that is something it makes a lot of sense. So officers and prosecutors clearly have this idea in their head of how Darley had handled this situation. And it wasn't, in their opinion, how a grieving mother was likely to handle her two boys being stabbed to death in the middle of the night. But, of course, you can't make an assumption based solely on how you think mm. someone should be handling an incredibly traumatic experience. So they do what any investigator would do. They resort to the physical evidence at the crime scene to see if this story matches up. They take photos, fingerprints, and swap for DNA while also mapping all of that out to see if what Darley and Darren had told them about the way that this brutal double homicide played out was actually what had happened. And, of course, they start with that knife. They figure out that the white-handled butcher's knife that was found on the kitchen floor came from inside of the house. It matched the set of knives the family had in a block sitting on their kitchen counter. They test the knife for fingerprints and cross-reference the blood on the knife with the DNA of the victims and find something pretty interesting. They see that, indeed, the fingerprints on the knife were smudged, just like Darley feared they would be. But when they test the blood that's on the knife, they find that there are only two sets of blood samples present, and that's Darley's and Damon's but not Devin's. WTF? Like, how does that happen? Does that mean that there's two murder weapons? Well, so that was never really fully explained by police officers. I mean, Devin is in just as bad of shape as Damon was. I mean, he literally died on the scene, but there's no evidence that he was stabbed using that same knife. I mean, I guess... Supposedly, let's play double advocate here. It's possible this mystery, this mystery killer stabbed Devin, cleaned off the knife, and then went back to finish the job. But seems pretty unlikely, right? I mean, right. it seems even more unlikely that they would have been able to clean off every single drop and every single trace of Devin's blood without waking anybody up. But at the same time, they're looking at blood spatter evidence, too, and they focus a lot of that attention at the kitchen sink. There is a lot of blood there, and for reasons police seem to believe are largely unexplained. Remember, the narratives officers are giving at this point is that they had to instruct Darley to go help their kids when they arrive, which is when Darley covers Damon in towels. Darren gives a bit of a contradicting statement to this and says Darley did get towels from the kitchen, but police say if that was true, there is still more blood there than there should be at the at this area of the kitchen. They said the amount of blood was consistent with someone who had been standing there bleeding for a good while, almost like that is where the initial attack had taken place. Again, you have to remember, she's bleeding from her neck. Mm-hmm. She's bleeding from her arm. She's like, she has cuts and bruises. And yeah. I know they said like, and I've seen the pictures. If you guys really want to go see mm-hmm. it, That's what I was going to say. But like, there's a I lot of blood. The, there's mm-hmm. a lot of yeah. blood. But I also know that like, I feel like you could have been standing like, Let's think about this. The length of that 911 call yeah. was like, what, six minutes long? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. If you were standing there for six minutes, you easily could have dropped that much blood. Yeah. I feel. Yeah, it does feel weird to me, like, th- like that they're like, yeah, she must have just been standing here, just like, blah, blah, blah. You know, yeah. and it's just like, it's like, oh, yeah, blah, blah, like that. Oh, anyway, that was weird. <laughs> Let me but gush the, right here. <laughs> yeah, right. And it's like, okay, no. like, why there? Like, why? Like, everyone knows that she was bleeding. You know, and right. it's like, like, why, like, why would she try to hide it at the sink? Like, that yeah. feels kind of strange to me, for sure. And it's like, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't really understand, I guess, like, why harping on this? Like, why, like, why, right. like, why, why the kitchen sink? Like, why is that such a huge, like, sticking point in your investigation about this whole thing? 
Next, they turn over to the garage, and this is when they discover a large window there opened and the screen that had been cut through, a decent sign of a break-in. But while they're examining the house, they come across more signs of what may have been used to cut open that screen. It's a butter knife that has fiberglass rods that match the fiberglass from the screen, but that butter knife is still inside of the house and still in its usual place. So, like, if this supposed intruder used the knife to cut the screen open, he just, like, ran it back into the kitchen? And if that's what happened, how did he get into the house? Like, presumably the butter knife was already inside of the home when this guy was trying to break in, right? There's no way. Yeah. There's no way. I know know so something that i have to mention is my and maybe i am unlike every other human in the world i'm not sure (laughs) maybe we are all the same but i use my knives to cut open literally everything whether it's mail whether it's uh something off of a shirt whether it you know anything i grab the knife from there it's the most we do need to get Rachel some scissors, but <laughs> it's accessible. <laughs> so anyone who wants to contribute to Rachel's life, scissors take too long. You got to use both fingers where you just grab that shit and you, um, so I just, I don't know how <laughs> Liam stop that. I'm just like imagining in my head, Rachel walking around a knife with her house and like cut, cut, I'm going to have scissors in my in my Amazon package this week for sure. It is it is wild that this could have been used for the same thing, but it could have been used for so many things. And I know that because I do this. The officers also look around the window inside and outside of the house, and they say that looks just as odd because there is a patch of mulch outside of the window that is totally undisturbed. So like... If the guy did get out of this window, like, where did he go from there? If all of that wasn't enough to raise an eyebrow or two, what they found a few houses down was also enough to prove that there was something nefarious happening at this crime scene. Just a few houses down, about 75 yards away in an alleyway, police find a sock. Now, not just any sock. They find a sock that has Devin and Damon's blood on it. An officer describes the stain as the size of an elongated nickel. And Darren testifies that this sock is indeed his. I mean, what? Like, what? Listen, listen, listen. I, like, had, like, my whole opinion about this whole thing. And this freaking sock just (laughs) totally blew everything out of the water for me. Yeah. Because, so, again, like, they think it happened inside the house. Mm-hmm. How do they explain a sock yeah. 75 yards away? We're not yeah. talking, like, he could throw a sock no. out her window and it land there 75 mm-hmm. yards away yeah. with both children's blood on it. So... Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that is, again, definitive proof that, like, whatever happened... Inside the house, whatever storyline anyone wants to believe about what's happened inside the house, it clearly spilled out of the house. You know what I mean? Like, right, what, like sure. you know, it, it, you know, led to this alleyway. So mm-hmm. if officers weren't suspicious enough about Darley and Darren's story about this supposed intruder, what they find while searching the rest of the home definitely makes them direct their eyes in a new direction. In Darley and Darren's bedroom, they find a journal of Darley's, and one particular entry is pretty alarming. It's an entry addressed directly to Darley and Darren's three boys, and it says, quote, forgive me for what I'm about to do. So this is just so hard, right? Because we know from multiple people that Darlie is having Mm -hmm. postpartum. And there's a lot of things that go through your mind with postpartum. And, you know, it's really tough to say without knowing what the whole entry was. Mm -hmm. Like, if they're just focusing on this one thing, like, you can see that going a lot of different ways. Yeah. You could see her, okay, you could see what they're painting it as. Like, I am about to commit this heinous act. Mm-hmm. You could see her running away from her problems. Forgive me for, I'm just about to bounce. 
Um, mm-hmm. You could see it going the other way where I'm about to take my own life because I forgive me for what I'm about to do. It's just hard to mm-hmm. know. And I think it's really important to note, like, like this is, like you said, one line of this whole entire journal entry. And so we're going to get to the full thing. That line alone, you could take a thousand different directions. Something like this happens. Well, and so, so again, so it's, it's addressed to her three boys, right? right so right. it's like, okay. Drake wasn't like, part of if it. You, yeah, right. So it's like, if you, if you want to like, you know, lead that to make people believe that, you know, that is her confessing to the murder. Okay. Well, what about Drake? Drake's right. alive and well. Drake's perfectly fine. Well, Darley explains this journal entry away, saying that she just hadn't been feeling well the last few months since having their baby. And she says that entry was when she had been closest to contemplating taking her own life. And that is what she was apologizing for there. Well, in case you all couldn't pick up on this on your own, it's pretty obvious that police are becoming highly suspicious of Devin and Damon's parents, particularly of their mother. And what she's about to do doesn't do her any favors either. Eight days after Devin and Damon's tragic death would have been Devin's seventh birthday. They had a celebration planned like every little boy did at that age. Darley and Darren and Dana and the rest of their family do not lose the, out the opportunity to celebrate their boys even after their untimely death. So they decide they're going to have a birthday celebration for Devin at the birth, at the boys final resting place. They even invite a reporter from a local television station since they still had not found out who broke into their home and killed their two kids just more than a week earlier. Now, I really have not found any way to describe this video. And so Rachel, Heather, I want to play this for you. So maybe you can help me out with that. I hate it so hard. I I do. I 100% hate that. Granted, people can edit things however they want to edit things. But what you're seeing is this mother who a week ago lost her two children. She's spraying silly string like over the sight and in just like a very and she's laughing and Mm -hmm. she's joking and when she gives kind of like the interview because they that that part also gets me like they Mm -hmm. invited reporters like i just don't feel like that was appropriate even if you hadn't found the perpetrators yet like there's a time and a place and i just don't feel like that's it yeah She's smacking her gum. She's like the way that she's talking. She's spraying Mm -hmm. to the string. They're laughing. They're joking. They're chewing. They're having a good time. Yeah. It just seems. And like you said, like, okay, maybe you're, you're in a, you're trying to celebrate the way your boys would want to, Mm -hmm. but it just doesn't seem in, at least in this small clip. And again, editing being what it is, it just doesn't seem appropriate in the least. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, and I think important to note, like, I don't know what she knew at this point, but I would imagine she probably didn't think that she was a suspect in her kid's death. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, maybe if she did know that, maybe she would have behaved a little bit differently. Right. I would hope so anyways. Well, so this was really all that investigators needed to see to know the truth that they had been suspecting for days that the person who Devin and Damon should have tr- been able to trust the most betrayed that trust in one of the worst ways imaginable. On June 18th, 12 days after the boys went to sleep for the last time and four days after that now infamous silly string video was recorded, police announced after what they call the most extensive and exhaustive investigation conducted by the police department that they are arresting and charging Darlie Routier, the boy's mother, with capital murder. I feel it's so hard because you can play devil's advocate in this case do so many things, mm-hmm. do so many things, all of the things that happened at the house, the forensic evidence, all of this, but kind of like you said, you see this infamous silly string video mm-hmm. and you're like, okay, like it really leans you to one side. As a mother, I just, you know, it's very hard to say that that is 
normal. I mean, I guess I could see, you know, for, again, from, from police perspective, you know, see that and be like, whoa, like that's not, that's not, not how like a grieving mother behaves. And like, right. but that's, that's not a reason to, to, to lock someone up. And so I guess right. it's just like that in combination with everything mm, else. For sure. That video in itself. It's crazy because you, mm-hmm. you look at it, you, you see it and you think to yourself, I wouldn't act that way or I wouldn't mm-hmm. do that. And some people see it and they think to themselves, that's exactly how I would act mm-hmm. because I would want to honor them and, and, and show them that I'm celebrating them and whatever. The point is, is you don't get to make that choice. Yeah, you don't right. get to say she was supposed to act this way. Yeah. She was supposed to do this. You're not her. So interestingly enough, Darlie is only charged with Damon's death. And maybe it's because the blood and the apparent murder weapon only match Damon's blood. But the theory here is that prosecutors would try Darlie for Damon's death. And if they failed, they would try her again for Devin, since that would not be a violation of someone's constitutional right against double jeopardy. Plus, because of Damon's age being younger than six, the crime was automatically qualifying for the death penalty, whereas Devin was older than that, so that would not have automatically qualified. And prosecutors lean right into that capital case treatment. They're going right for the death penalty here. Police cite a number of pieces of evidence in deciding that Darley is the perpetrator, the butter knife, the lack of footprints outside, and the butcher's knife, which, again, came from inside of the home. But they also said nothing valuable was stolen from the house, and they said that greatly decreased the possibility of an intruder, because why would a total stranger break into a home and randomly attack two kids and their mother, but not take anything from themselves to make it all worth it. Next, they point to the blood evidence inside of the home, samples taken from Darley's bloody shirt. Police said that the dried blood on the right shoulder area of Darley's nightshirt was consistent with cast-off blood, meaning they must have been cast during the actual crime. On top of that, they go back to the blood at the sink. Police said that Darley must have been standing there bleeding for some time to produce that amount of blood, which clearly pokes some holes in her original story that she was rushing around trying to get towels for her boys while Damon was still, you know, grasping at life. So this is what they think happened. They believe Darley cut her own throat at the sink, leading to this intense amount of blood before she stabbed her two kids herself. That's when she states just supposed break in and made up this unknown male intruder, cutting open the garage window screen with the butter, with the butter knife to make that story believable. Police also argue that she stashed the bloody sock 75 yards away, all as a way to substantiate this whole story of an attacker who came from outside of the house. Prosecutor said that she did it because her boys were becoming too much of a financial and emotional burden, pointing to her own admission that she was struggling with postpartum depression. They argue that the family business was struggling to pull in profits and that Darren had even been denied for a $5,000 loan the Saturday before the boys were killed. On top of that, they said the boys represented the robbery of Darlie's freedoms, that she wasn't able to go on these lavish spending sprees and vacations since she had just started her family. And finally, there's the video of that celebration, the one that happened just a week after the boys had been murdered. The district attorney said she was, quote, literally out dancing on their graves and that it proved she was, quote, depraved enough to kill her own two children. The evidence is, of course, fairly circumstantial, at least the bulk of it is. But obviously, it's not just up to police or prosecutors to decide. It's all up to a jury. Darlie Routier goes to trial the very next year, where the prosecution lays out their story for how they think the early morning of June 6, 1996 really all played out. They point to the financial burdens that the family had been experiencing over the last several months to years, and they clearly tried to paint Darlie as this horrible mother who only cared about herself, and the best evidence of that was the birthday party at the boy's grave. The jury had apparently watched 
this highly edited version of the video seven times throughout the trial and during their deliberations. And prosecutors use this visual to their advantage in their attempts to show Darlie not as a grieving mother, but instead as a cold-hearted woman who was glad that she was able to get rid of her boys for good. The instantly, the first thought that comes to my mind is the fact that you just said seven. I thought it was eight, nine, ten, eleven. <laughs> they wanted to see this. They wanted to see it more. That's right. what what mm. it comes down to is they wanted yeah. to see this video. And yeah. it's well, it's and I wild. think sorry, just to pause there, only because yeah. I think and like uh, you can ref- um, finish that thought in just a second. Only because I think it's important to note, like like juries, like the way that juries work, right, is that like you you see the evidence and then you ask to see certain parts of the evidence that are pointed right. attention, right. right? So so they so to your point, you know, juries say, you know, oh, can we see that again? Can we yes. see that again? Can see yes. that again, you know, yes. so it's not just the, like, it's not either side of this case saying, right. oh, let's just keep showing it to them. It's the jury asking for it numerous It times. was clearly in their head. Like that was right. clearly something that they were stuck on mm-hmm. as a point. Like, let's, let's yeah. go back and look at this evidence again, 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 because to them, you can see like the reason why you would want to look at that again, 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 because it ultimately gives you the ick right you don't want to but like you have to is because you're trying to i mean glean something further from that well darley takes a bit of a unique approach to her own trial one that a lot of attorneys would probably caution against she decides that she's going to take the stand and defend herself she gets up there and insists to the jury that she's innocent that she would never hurt her two boys and she sticks to that story of that strange male intruder but she says she can't remember a lot again She says she's blacked out during much of the entire attack and the aftermath and can only remember bits and pieces, probably to block out the horrors that she had just witnessed. But prosecutors don't let her off that easy. They grill her on her multiple different accounts of that night, her story that she had been awakened by her boys and not by her multiple stab wounds and on her behavior after that attack. Right before Dartley was arrested, police had interrogated her and asked her straight up multiple times, did you kill your own kids? And Dartley denied it over and over and over again. But apparently, at least one time, she replied saying, if I did, I don't remember. Ugh. I have so many feelings about this. And like one thing that just like continues to come to my mind when I think about this is making a murderer Netflix Mm -hmm. documentary. If you guys haven't seen it, go freaking watch it because the truth of the matter is a, you're being grilled by this authority. We know that that elicits certain responses. B she has been through this traumatic experience. And so It's just so hard to say if a guilty person saying that because, you know, they say like guilty people need to get shit off their chest or if Mm -hmm. an innocent person is saying that because they're literally traumatized, they're being grilled and they're like, look, I really, really do not know. Yeah. What answer you want from yeah. me right now? Well, and I, and that wouldn't be the first time that we heard about this either, right? I mean, exactly. so many times I feel like I've, I've, you know, told stories on this very podcast of, you know, you know, investigators that are just like, you know, what happened? And they're just like, you have no evidence that I ever did this one. And why? Because I never did anything wrong. Right. You know, right. and it's like, you know, I think uh, back to, um, you know, episode seven that it's, uh, the Sherry Orofino case where they're grilling Paul and saying, we know you did this. We know you did this. Look, we have this like person, uh, you know, who said that, that they were talking to you and they're a murderer and blah, 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 blah. You know, you just, we know you did this. We know you did this. But then he takes a polygraph and he passes. Right. And he's like, and they're like, oh, okay. Yeah. That's fine. We're going to move on. And it's like, well, okay. Well, you just what? grilled him. Yeah. It's like, WTF. <laughs> yeah. it's like, okay. So it's, so, so yeah. So point being, it's like, uh, like, especially around this time, like I do not, you know, maybe in 2023, like maybe I, you know, give them a little bit more grace potentially, yeah. but like 1996, I definitely oh, yeah. don't put it past sure. any police department to, you know, to really be putting it into them. 
For sure. Right. For sure. Yep. Darley denies ever saying this, but prosecutors lean into that, basically taking this as an admission of guilt. And after a nine hour deliberation, so does a jury. On February 4th, 1997, just shy of eight months after the murders, the jury finds Darley Routier guilty and she is sentenced to death. 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 It's so hard, right? It's so hard. I have had so many conversations because this is, you know, when, when you do this kind of stuff, this is what you talk about with your mm-hmm. people. Yeah. I've talked to my husband about, <laughs> would you be able to ever consider a death sentence mm. for someone? Like, would you ever Anyone. be able to yeah, consider? Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. And it's so hard. I could. <laughs> I mean, so we say that we say like, if the person straight up said, yup, I did it. Yeah. MFers, mm. like this is all me and I'm a, I'm a cop to all of it. And they're like the worst, you know, piece of trash in the history of the world. Yeah. F it. Like what is sit mm. either sit them to the Island where they can't do anything or, you know what? F it, you know, but it's so hard on a case like this yeah. where it's just like, clearly there's so <sighs> yeah. much back and forth. How could you even yeah. consider something like that? Well, and it makes me wonder too, like how, like how it was, cause, cause obviously we're talking about all this, um, you know, what, like 27 years later. And it's <sighs> like, you know, we, we know so much in hindsight, but it's like, mm. how was this presented in court? You know what I mean? It's oh, like, yeah. like, you know, I, I could see so much, you know, opportunity for that where again, like, I think, you know, point being is like, you know, I think about the jury and I'm like, okay, you know, like, you know, they, they have, they have to live with that for the rest of, them, of their lives. Right. The fact that they send us and like, I'm sure in their heads, they're like, yeah, yeah, guilty, 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 guilty. But then, you know, all these years later, like, I'm wondering what they're thinking, right. reading all of this, knowing right. what, you know, the, the devil's advocate portion of it. Yeah, everything no, that came know. out, like, afterwards, mm. like, as a juror, do you sit there and you go, no, I did the right Rosie thing, like, she's right. she's definitely guilty, or, oh, my God, did I make a huge mistake, and yeah. I could have been the person that changes this this lady's life, like, yeah, yeah. it's so, yeah. it's crazy. Well, so Darlie maintains her innocence to this day, and her lawyers have actually recently won multiple different appeals to try and get DNA retested and to try and get Darlie a new trial. But in 2023, Darlie is still a mother on death row. But Darren and her family insist that she did not do this and that she is an innocent woman. Her youngest son, Drake, was put into custody of Darren's mother, who will also say that Darley is innocent. In 2013, Drake was diagnosed with leukemia, but is now in remission. He would be 26 today. But as you all know, there is more than one side to every story. And if you know Darley's story, you're probably sitting there listening to this and going absolutely crazy, wondering why we're all leaving out critical and I mean critical, pieces of evidence. Critical. And you all know me better than that at this point. I left out so much on purpose because there is so much that we didn't even touch on that could make you all wonder if there has been an innocent woman sitting on death row for more than a quarter of a century. But you'll have to wait until next week to hear that side of the story. And not here on this podcast, but instead, we are going to dive deep into the case for Darlie Routier's innocence on Rachel and Heather's podcast, Wine Time. So, Rachel, Heather, tell everyone when and where they can find not only that episode, but also all of your fantastic episodes. Tell us about Mm -hmm. it. So, first of all, I am so excited because, like you said, you, I will say intentionally, left out so much. The only thing we can tell you is there's more to come. But so we, so Heather and I, we have our podcast, Wine Time. And you can find us kind of anywhere, um, any of the podcast platforms we are on. We are at Wine Time. And it's, you know, a mom cast. We are here, like he said at the beginning. Liam had told you guys that we are a mom cast. We bring the good, the badass, and the crime of all the mom content, and we do. We we kind of uh, I don't want to say catered towards that crime, but that's kind of <laughs> why we're here. 
Um, That's our niche. That's what we it, do. It is. It it definitely is. But we will be bringing that part two to you on on wine time. So yeah. come and check that part out. For check sure. it out next week. Our episode will drop on April 18th. Uh, and you guys will be able to tune in and hear so much more. We will literally spend, if you couldn't tell already, <laughs> we will literally spend the entire episode playing devil's advocate and we will get into this and we'll say it a million times, but you know, whether or not you think Darlie's guilty, the truth of the matter is it comes down to what she should be legally held accountable mm. for by a court of law. So we yeah. will totally be getting into that. Check it out. Um, and we're just excited to continue on with this Darley episode. I'm excited to have Liam uh, <laughs> enter our wine bucket. <laughs> because let me tell what, you. Okay. I have to say, I, I slowed down. I still have probably a good glass left. You're a good girl. I okay, am, so I'm, I'm the lightweight. Yes! Liam and Rachel will finish. <laughs> Ether is behind. That's why so we got this all. We got this whole thing figured out because yes. Rachel and I are like, we we got we we can <laughs> solve this whole entire crime. We're right there. Right there. Call over the DA right now. We got the answer. <laughs> well, thank you both so much for coming on this week. It was absolutely lovely diving into this case. This has legit been the funnest thing I've ever done ever <laughs> in my life. I'm not even kidding you. I'm putting that Rachel, on a t-shirt. I love you, but like Liam, you're amazing. And <laughs> there's, there's a third podcast coming in, in your future. I feel pretty confident. She did. She had that. already said, like, if we could record with him every single day, this is what I want to do. So <laughs> we we appreciate it. Thank you so much for having us on Crime Over Wine. We loved every single second. Thank you all again so much for coming on. And thank you all so much for listening to. We are going to put all of our sources on our website so you can read everything for yourself and probably come up with a few theories too. And by the way, if you love this podcast and are wondering how you can tell anyone and everyone about it, the best way to help others find this podcast is by leaving us a review and rating wherever you are listening right now. So make sure you follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and also Wine Time on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter too. <laughs> so we will see you next week for another episode, but not in the way you might think. Also on Wine Time for part two of this story and for another episode too of Crime Over Wine. Proud member of the Podnuga Network.